Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 30 of the Filmed Live Musicals podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Lyons, and my guest today is director and producer Kenneth Farone, an Emmy-nominated producer and director whose credits span television, film, Broadway theater, and dance. Amongst his many credits, Kenneth was a producer on TV's Rent on Fox, Grease Live, and the series Rise and Smash. On stage, he has directed the national tour of Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical, the off-Broadway productions Lucy Pohl, High Hitler, and Sisters, the musical, and his associate director, Colin Quinn, The New York Story, and Broadway productions Love Letters, Wonderland, and SpongeBob, the musical. Welcome, Kenneth. Thank you for having me, and uh, congratulations on your big 3-0. Thank you so much. That's exciting. That's great. <laughs> exciting. Thank you very much. So to start us off, what made you fall in love with musical theater? Oh my goodness. I was very lucky as a child. I moved to Florida from Pennsylvania when I was five years old. And my town, Vero Beach, Florida, had this wonderful children's theater program. And it actually operated out of, at that time, an elementary school in town. And they would do the programs, you know, after school programs on the weekends, big camp in the summer for all age groups and, you know, teaching kids, again, not not just sort of technical theater skills, but a lot of interpersonal social interaction and all of the things that come from, you know, early education. And as I grew older, so did the theater. They were, you know, granted a lot of gifts from patrons and it grew into this wonderful playhouse, you know, facility with with dance studios and rehearsal studios. And and eventually by the time I was in high school, they even built this state-of-the-art black box. So I feel very and they were adjacent to an equity theater. So I had the opportunity to go see lots of shows. They were all locally directed and produced, but much of those casts were flown from New York City and cast out of New York City. Uh, Riverside Theater. So I'll give a shout out to Riverside Children's <laughs> Theater. From five years old to the day I left for college, um, you know, it gave me opportunities to learn and grow and work with others and to be in shows, to work on shows. Um, so I felt very lucky in that, in that small town. Wow, you you had like a uh, internship basically from five years old. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it was like you talk about an imp- uh, apprenticeship, but it was just a great you know way to and 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 also of all my friends who were involved in that, there's there's several of us that actually continued with it as a profession, but I think for so many more, it's just such a great opportunity, you know, to, to learn how to, you know, be in front of the public and lose inhibition and work with others and collaborate and dissect and read. And I'm a big proponent of arts education and also opportunities like that for a variety, you know, and they would have scholarships and bring in students from surrounding communities. And it was just really exciting to see that, that program grow as a kid. Mm, and to grow with it as exactly know, older, yes. the program developed too. That's really something very special. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I, I think about it fondly all the time. 
what led to you becoming a director and a producer? You know, slowly through school and high school and and all of that, I knew I wanted a career in the theater, and that was always on the horizon. I performed. I was an actor. I went to college as a theater major and and had the had the opportunity to both study as an actor, but to also train as a director and to work in student theater. You know where you have to sort of build productions from the ground up. So you 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 know I. I often wore the producing hat. And so slowly, you know, my my focus evolved because when I was performing, there were always, as an actor, you contribute so much, but often I wanted to be, you know, on the other side of that table, sort of helping to shepherd the big picture. And then often to get out of necessity, just to get my directing projects off the ground as an early director, I had to, you know, put the nuts and bolts of it together myself, hence the producing. So they they are all interconnected a bit. What I eventually came to realize, as, as much as I did enjoy being on the stage, I found a lot more, um, uh, just a lot more excitement working behind the scenes and directing and helping steer the, the big picture. So it evolved. What was your first directing project? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, if I was going way, way back, it was probably something at the children's theater in the summer camp. They did a great summer camp and and I was directing, you know, I was probably, you know, 11 or 12 years old directing like six-year-olds. So... <laughs> Probably some sort of Noah's Ark thing. I remember it was very, it's like, move over, Lion King. We had we had big cardboard clouds on broomsticks, and we, we hung streamers in them, and you would, you would pull the cord, and the rain would fall out of the clouds, and, you know, so a little bit of a set designer, too. I always say, I, I always say to be a director, you're, you're good at all, you, you're, you're, you, you have experience in all the pieces, but, you know, you're, you're, great at editing all of them, but not actually executing all of them. So. <laughs> well, you need to have that vision. You need to be able to exactly the picture, like you said. And so you, you grew up working and learning about theater. When did television, working in television, come to the... You know, it was, it was I want to say it was a happy accident, but as we know in this profession, it's so often easy to say, oh, you know, they got lucky. Oh, this just sort of happened and they were in the right, you know, it was the right time in the right place. And there is some truth to that just as there is in life. And, and I think with any profession, but that's not to say I didn't seek it out. I was always interested in mediums of storytelling beyond just physical, uh, you know, live theater. I was always interested in film and television. When I, I, I moved to New York right out of college and was, I actually, I took a little bit of a detour. I worked for a time just to support myself at a literary agency. It was ICM, which is a big a talent literary agency, uh, working in the theater department and working with directors and writers and, and composers and, and designers, some of, the, some of the most experienced in New York. And 
eventually, always, always knowing all along that directing was sort of the end game for me, directing, producing. And so eventually when I left there, I was lucky enough to begin to get some apprentice work and some AD and assistant directing work off-Broadway at small regional theaters, but with, you know, a number of really terrific, wonderful directors who I really was able to learn from. And I, to jump ahead, I was actually assisted, I was associate director on Wonderland, a, a Frank Wildhorn musical that briefly played on Broadway. We were at the Marquee, and I remember a, a TV show. I, I had been looking for opportunities to step into television, and um, I read about this new production called Smash. Uh, being produced by NBC. It had been a pilot that was being developed by Showtime and had just made the jump to NBC and had been cast. And I thought, gosh, if there's any time to try and make a transition and to learn about television, I studied a little bit about television, but you know, it's one thing academically studying and it's another thing applying and learning hands-on in the field. And I believe whether it's theater, television, film, they're all industries that education is very important, but then equally as important is, is the apprenticeship period. Um, because you learn from people and you, you learn what, what works and what doesn't and how to be nimble on your feet and how to make decision, you know, tough decisions in the moment. So I was looking for a television gig. I saw this. I thought, well, it's a show about the theater. (laughs) What better? Maybe I have a skill set to try and get an in. And so I went back to my early connections at the agency and I asked some friends and um, a wonderful agent there happened to rep one of the actresses who was on the show. And she's like, I don't know if they're looking for anyone, but I'll send in your resume and maybe there's, you know, a production assistant position. I was like, I'll take anything, which again, game, you have to be game in this business and just say, yes, I'll do it. Always say yes. Always say yes. If you can, you know, there, I know a lot of people, there are, there's, there's financial limitations too, but luckily, you know, you can, you can pay your rent with that. So I, um, they sent my resume on and just by luck and chance, the line producer, which is sort of the nuts and bolts producer who manages schedule and logistics and budgets and really holds uh, the, the, an entire production together, he was looking for an assistant. Uh, and long story short, got the job and the rest is history. You know, smash became, it was, it was a wonderful opportunity for me, a, to really learn, um, the nuts and bolts of television production on a very large, complicated show because uh, smash just with all of the elements and the dancing and the singing and the musical elements and the, the, the large creative team involved, there were a lot of moving pieces. So it created a wonderful opportunity for me as I learned and became, you know, comfortable with it um, uh, to take on more and more responsibility. Um, and by season two, I was promoted to an associate producer on the show. Uh, and, uh, you know, the rest sort of went from there. Um, I, I, I worked on several pilots of some other series for NBC while I was working there uh, and the opportunity to work on some films. I did a film later with Teresa Rebeck, who's the creator and founder as a second AD. So I, or I mean, as a first AD. So I wore, you know, I wore many hats and um, you know, many opportunities came from that. 
But, uh, you know, I always joke Smash is just such a learning experience for everyone. Um, I, I'm, I was recently working on a very large international show with a lot of stunts and explosions and helicopters and filming in the Amazon rainforest and all of that. And I'm like, oh, this is no different from Smash. I mean, trying to put – you laugh, but, but, you know, trying to coordinate um, – dancers and the logistics that come with that and the scenic design and how the music affects the dance and the storytelling and and you know you need to have special floor and you need to build in proper rehearsal time and warm-ups the 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 logistics of coordinating a show like that both both creatively in terms of how best to tell the story and how to put all the pieces together and also how to physically produce it on the ground and what elements you need is a very similar skill set to doing a big, you know, stunt sequence or action sequence. It's, it's very much one in the same. Uh, so the two go, I know that's a jump, but the two, the two really do go hand in hand. And it, it makes me think of like producing live theater where there, it's all about logistics. You know, it's, yeah. it's about cast and crew and uh, making sure that um, cues align with what is happening on stage and then bringing in an audience. It's, and so it's very easy to see how that leap from producing theater and working in theater translates into creating a production that has a camera in front of it on screen. Exactly. Very much so. And, and, you know, even in the theater, I say, um, the late Hal Prince, um, you know, I know he, he, he always was a big proponent of saying that the theater is lacking creative producers. I don't think, you know, it's, I know a lot of wonderful creative producers who are very good at shepherding um, the process and helping to see the big picture. But I do agree that the theater could use more of that and make space for more of that. Um, you know, theater, and, and I'm more specifically talking about uh, uh, commercial theater, like Broadway theater now, because a lot of our, our terrific regional theaters around the country do have the infrastructure. But so much of producing on Broadway is raising the money, which is much akin to how an indie film would work also an independent film, but it takes such it's to me, I think raising money for a show is such a huge task. Um, and so much of time and effort and hours go into that, that some shows tend to, um, you know, not have a producer as focused on all of those moving pieces, which you do have more of in television and film. Uh, and so, you know, I'd love to see some more of that in, in the theater. And I think some of my most successful projects have had really terrific producers or producing teams, I should say, cause no man's an Island, no woman's an Island. Um, but it's the teams that are really able to both, keep a finger on the budget and raising the money and the capital to, to make a vision a success and also to help um, constructively guide the conversation and keep the communication flowing between all of, all of the teams. Um, 
I don't even remember what the question was. I think we went down a tangent. But oh, I, I love this tangent because it, it leads perfectly into what, what we're going to talk about more today, which is theater on screen. So I'm curious in the projects that you've worked on, this tension between produced live theater and then putting that live theater on screen. Uh, you know, I know it's a very hot button topic and it's, it's a, a debate that's evolving and it's, it's, sort of the platforms and the accessibility is evolving. Um, I, I like to take the position of yes and. I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm very much in favor of the, the making theater accessible. And if streaming theater opens it up and, and, and makes people around the world go, who might not have access to live theater, go, oh, this exists. This is a thing. This is an art form. I love this. I love watching it, but I also want to experience it live. Oh, I don't have any in my town. So maybe I'm going to go, you know, put a stage in my backyard and invite three neighbors over and suddenly they're a theater maker. Um, and I think that is something great that can come out of streaming. Now, uh, you know, I, I think there are, are, are limits and I think there's um, a way to do it. And I don't think it's a one size fits all situation in terms of filming live stage shows and putting them on screen and, and giving access to them. And that's something that I'm, I'm, you know, I've been watching evolve. A lot has come out of the pandemic now as regional theaters try to get up on their feet um, and trying to produce shows. And when audiences weren't necessarily able to physically be in the theater, um, you know, I know it was a lot of back and forth with unions and labor and all of that, but to strike a balance where, um, you know, you can sell tickets and it's still not above and beyond because you can't, theaters also have to, um, you know, they have a financial model they have to follow. And so they have to sell tickets. You can't just sort of take the show and broadcast it live because then how does the theater recoup its costs? Also, the talent involved, and, and by talent, I don't just mean actors and actresses, but I mean the entire team from the, from the designers to the creative team to the crews to everybody. Um, you know, you do a television show or a film, and there are unions that you participate in that, in that revenue. And in theater, it's a little different. So there, there needs to be a working model for that. And then the other part of the debate in terms of putting live theater on screen and making it accessible is, oh, well, is it going to, you know, detract from the audiences wanting to come see it? Because why am I going to go see it in a theater? And I will say this, let me put the disclaimer here, live streaming shows are not a replacement for live theater in a room where an entire audience is experiencing a collective um, experience that's ephemeral, ephemeral and only happens once. It is not a replacement for that, but it can help augment that. And to explain, um, you know, with the Broadway shows that we see being filmed, I've, I've heard so much that, you know, oh, well, they're not going to buy a ticket because they're just going to watch it on, on streaming or on, you know, on whatever channel that hasn't, been my experience on shows I've done and sort of in looking at 
the model. That's that's not it. When when especially talking about Broadway or, or any of these theaters where accessibility is limited to geographic location, to finances and extreme ticket prices. Mm-hmm. Exactly. How you know, everybody doesn't have that access. But not only that, if they're going to bring a family of four or six to New York, say, and and buy tickets to this show, it costs a small fortune. And they're willing to spend that and have that experience, but they want to make sure that it's something everybody's going to enjoy. And I find that often if you give a taste of that, you know, and no... No one wants to read the reviews. And I, I just feel like they watch it. They know, oh, remember that? We watched it. We loved it. And audiences are smart. We have to give audiences the benefit of the doubt. They can watch it and say, oh, I love this, but I would really like to see it live. I think audiences, people understand that, again, being in a live space, it's a different experience. And I don't think having watched it on a streaming platform is going to detract. If they like the show, if the story speaks to them, then they're still willing. Then they're even more willing because now they know what the story is and that they can, in fact, connect with it. Um, I think it only it only helps. And, and you know, on, on a personal level, I, when you do TV and stuff, you know, you don't feel as connected to such a broad audience. But I have to say, I go back again and again. When Smash was canceled, somehow my email or my website or something, somebody must have posted it on a fan channel or a social channel. And all of a sudden, my inbox started being flooded. And I have saved every single one to this day. I received 2,800 emails from people all across the world. And they were really personal and really moving saying, you know, I'm so sad this show is ending. Um, We love theater. We love musicals. We love Broadway. We love New York, whatever, whatever the reason, but they weren't able to make it in. And, you know, it's things you don't even think about, like um, an elderly woman who used to go, you know, twice a year and her big trip with the family was to go see a show. And now she's in a physical state where she's not able to leave or to travel or sick people or people with young children or, or they don't have, you know, they can't afford to bring their whole family. And so, so smash was just a taste of that. And you realize, Oh, there are all these people. And, and, it's certainly not hurting, you know, their lack of attendance isn't killing Broadway. So why not, you know, provide them with, with this experience as well. And, and I, I had similar notes after, you know, Grease Live and Rent and, and other theater projects. And most recently SpongeBob, we had the opportunity to finally, um, and again, you know, hats off to our, our terrific producers and Tina Landau and Nickelodeon saying, we want to capture this show and this cast. And, you know, when we filmed, we filmed, so for those who don't know, we filmed the SpongeBob musical, which, which ran on, on Broadway for um, a little under a year. Um, We filmed that over a year, nearly a year after the production closed on Broadway and managed to bring back the entire original cast to capture that we had put out the tour, the tour was running. Um, and 
it just made it accessible to such a large audience. And, you know, that was a show where a lot of people, oh, it's SpongeBob on stage. Well, we love SpongeBob and it's such an international franchise. But like, how does that translate to stage? And I don't want to go see, you know, a theme park show with big heads. And even though it was as far from that as humanly possible and the marketing teams did such a, you know, job to try and communicate that, there was still hesitancy. Now, but unfortunately, by the time the show closed due to other reasons and the theater being renovated and everything, the the sales, you know, attendance was really on an upswing and people were finally, you know, these shows take time to breathe, just like a TV series often takes time to catch on. And we were seeing that. Um, but even with the, the show airing, um, on Nickelodeon, then the tour, which was then out at that time, saw, you know, a big upswing. So it, it helped. It helped because now people went, oh, that's what it is. Oh, it looks so fun. And my kids of all ages and the grandparents and everybody love this. It's coming to our town. Let's go buy tickets because that looks so fun on screen. I can't imagine, and you know, being a fully immersive show, I can't imagine what that would feel like in person. Let's go. So it it only benefits, it complements it. It doesn't, it doesn't detract. And I and I and I truly feel it's that way with any with any any show. So I'm I'm a big fan of it. I oh, so many things I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> SpongeBob was one of my favorite Broadway experiences. I went with my husband and he's not a huge musical fan and we had like one of the best nights of our lives at the theater. It was just such a joyful show and I was like, "Please, please film it." And then when you filmed it in cuz you flew over into the UK, right? Exactly, yes. Okay. A lot of people don't realize that. I want to talk about that in more detail. We will come to that. Um, But the capture is so wonderful and it made it available to people. Like we could not plug it enough. We were like, you need to watch this musical. It's not what you think. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And and then coming back to Smash, uh, I remember watching it obsessively while I was at drama school in London. (laughs) Sneakily found a way to watch it. Sky Atlantic, right? Sky Atlantic. (laughs) It it came uh, full circle when you did a live production of the show, of the the musical with It's Bad. And then that was also broadcast and how that attracts people. So there's like this constant interplay between like live and between theater and between screen and the way that those two things are, are interplaying is really fascinating to me. And, you know, it's always existed. I even remember you'd come to New York and, you know, they archive everything for the New York Public Library, thankfully. Um, uh, but it's, 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 you know, they treat it more on a research basis and for young artists, you know, and studying and to look at the craft and to see how it was done as opposed to public consumption. But so yeah, I don't know how it is anymore, but you used to have to sort of prove you have a reason. But Still the case, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have to much, you know, if you're a student and we're all... <laughs> We're all students of life in one way or another. So anybody can really have access. But then you sit in the cubicle and you watch it, you know, right there in the room. But all of these exist. So to make them accessible and to find a way to make it accessible, why not? I mean, it's just such a wonderful um, uh, tool. And for those entering um, the business, because it's also a business, um, you know, artists entering if it opens up more opportunities and helps to expand 
audiences, uh, which is what it does, you know, and if it hooks you at a young age, then you have, you know, you're building your audience for the future. Um, and, and what and you were talking before about the importance of arts education, that this folds into that. And also what you were talking about with making it accessible, making captures available to people who for reasons of geography or um, childcare or finances, whatever, for whatever reason, they can't get into the physical building. This opens the doors to them. And uh, I always think about record sales. You were talking before about how... Mm -hmm people worry about ticket sales in the actual building. And when uh, records of albums were streaming, it killed physical album sales, yes. But what went up? Physical tickets to concerts and yes. you know tours. And so people will always want the live in-person experience. And like you say, you know, the person who streams SpongeBob in... I don't know, somewhere Oklahoma, who yeah. who would never have access to seeing it on Broadway or the tour might not come via their small town, will now have access to it. And then their school is going to put on a production of it and they're going to go see it. Exactly. So exactly. It, all, it all feeds in. It all, it's all part of the, um, the ecology of the theater world. And human nature craves a, a collective shared experience. So again, I don't, I can't stress it enough, you know, to my fellow colleagues, I don't see it stopping people. If anything, it just encourages more people to say, oh, I want to go experience that live and in person. Um, you know, you can watch a, a roller coaster on somebody's YouTube channel, but you know, that doesn't mean, oh, I, you know, I watched it on the channel. I'm not going to go, you know, I want, go to the theme park and ride it. No, you want to go for that ride. You want to be taken on that journey. So I think it only, it only helps. Absolutely. I, you are, you're speaking my language right now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to rewind and go all the way back to Sisters, which is uh, yes. filmed almost 10 years ago. Was it filmed in a studio and not in the theater? Sisters was a, a, a really special experience for me, um, I came on to it uh, sort of last minute. It was an off-Broadway show, and 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 the the people creating it um, uh, through a, a number of of uh, creative team uh, issues uh, needed a new director last minute, and it was just for a festival. and And I came on and had such an astounding group of smart. Um, women and it became like a workshop and we knew the story we wanted to tell and everybody contributed to that and the um uh it all sort of evolved over time and moved off broadway and then uh the producers um again decided oh this you know we want to expand this story um to a larger audience and um bet and uh, an independent film company called Swirl Films, based, I believe they're based in DC, um, came on board to produce the, the capture. We actually did it at a church. Um, so for those who don't know, Sisters tells the story of um, a family, five generations of African-American women, and their family history told through song, told through the past uh, century of um, uh, black female music. Uh, and so, um, 
it's it's just such an incredible story and, and great music. And we went and we we built a set specifically for the capture because the show, um, which you know, had it not been for the pandemic, would now actually be in its tenth year off Broadway at St. Luke's. And um, it started in a festival. Hinton Battle, our our wonderful producer, um, uh, helped you know get the word out, and it ran. and And, and uh, groups and audiences came from uh, all over the country to see this show off Broadway, and it was so moving. Again, if you make it, and if you bring on the right team, and we we have this conversation right now, and I'm you know I'm I'm I like. Uh, consider myself a very active listener in terms of the BIPOC conversation and, and making shows accessible. But a big part of that is also bringing on publicity and marketing teams and those who understand how to expand beyond sort of what I call our theater bubble of, of theater goers who are going to buy a ticket anyway and reach out into these other communities and make tickets and access accessible. Um, so Again, this capture was just part of that. And so what we did was we built, we expanded the set. We went out and we built it at, I can't remember the name of the, of the, of the actual church that we shot it in, but we shot it at this wonderful church out in Brooklyn, almost out near Coney Island. <laughs> um, and they had their own um, incredible choir that then we added to the show to augment it. And we brought in all the um, female members of the congregation to come because the last scene of the show takes place at um, a memorial service for sort of the matriarch of the family who's passed away. And um, to have all of these generations of women be on stage with our cast was, was, you know, really really, really powerful. And it was reflective of the audiences that I would stand in the back of that theater and watch night after night after night after night. And I can't pretend as a white male to be having a, a, a quarter of the experience that that audience was having. But I can tell you whether they were little girls, whether they were older grandmothers, whether they were husbands, boyfriends, all genders, all races, experiencing this story and singing and engaging and laughing and, and, and clapping along, um, it showed me what theater can be and what theater can do. Um, and the access that that captured did, I'm sure that has, a, you know, and it aired on BET and was very successful. And then BET aired it a second time. And it's very funny now because Tyler Perry has a, a television series called Sisters yes. on the same network. So you Google it and our show tends to get lost. But at the time, it was they had such great feedback. They aired it a second time on the network. And then it became available, I think, on Amazon and DVD and all of that. Yeah. But um, I'm sure it helped the longevity of, um, of the run off Broadway. And it sort of became a title that people and and various groups I know made trips to the city to see, which again, as a theater artist, it's all about your audience and connection and to know that people are coming in town to see a project that you were a small part of is, is very, 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 very special. And again, just speaks to the power of like putting it out there, yeah. <laughs> not keeping yeah. it in one off-Broadway theater where I don't know how many people St. Luke sits. Exactly. Uh, like, 
not meant not many yeah if if that if that you know it's 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 a soup kitchen on the weekends and then our show comes in and it, it was a shared space with multiple other shows you yeah. know so you can't really have a big set or anything um so for a director it's like okay you can't really fully realize what you think the production could be it doesn't matter you have five incredible actresses standing on a platform in front of an audience telling a story and inhabiting characters. And, um, you know, sometimes that's, that's all you need. That's, that's the essence of theater, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some people exactly. at a stage, some people looking at them. <laughs> and if they're looking at them from their living room, yeah. a thousand miles away, that's just yeah. as valid. <laughs> and that was, you know, we, I, I was so thankful for that capture. And again, and not to get on the soapbox too much, but I, I read these articles or I see these where they're like, oh, here's streaming theater, and it's not included in the list. Why is it not included? Well, I think because it's often not on people's radar. And again, that speaks to having the appropriate uh, you know, marketing publicity, people who are able to communicate that there is a show that is, you know, accessible and for this audience and tells a story that's important to hear um, and to have, you know, those sort of right kind of pieces. And so I know our show had that team in place, but often the organizations who are making these lists or the Broadway websites or, you know, um, it often doesn't get included because you don't have people on those internal teams who are making those lists, who are going and attending that theater. Right. And I think, you know, again, diversifying and making sure that we all make room for those individuals on our teams and in our companies are going to help, um, you know, broaden broaden that exposure and, and linking those lists. Absolutely. When you filmed Sisters, was it filmed in one take or what was the process? It was, um, it was done in, we did it twice. It was done in two performances, I think over two nights, so that it could be spontaneous and exciting. And, you know, it's funny because that was was while I was doing Smash. That was almost a decade ago that we filmed it. And some of what I learned on that, I realized, you know, we inherently applied in doing uh, what I later got involved with, which were the live, the live broadcast musicals like Grease Live and Rent Live and so on and so forth. But the fact that you want the audience, you don't fill the audience like you would on Broadway at a final dress or something with friends and family and all of that. No, it's a completely... Um, you know, new audience so that the reactions and the interaction and the engagement is spontaneous as if seeing for the first time. Because as much as I always want my friends and family and everybody in the audience, but sometimes you, you, because you know that person on stage so intimately, there's, there's some inhibition and oftentimes responses can be, I don't want to say stilted, but they're often not as authentic as with a completely different audience. So that's, that was sort of the experience of taping that. And it's also something we apply when we're doing the, the live broadcast shows for the networks in that you have, you have, um, you know, these, these audiences that are experiencing it live and in person 
for the first time. And I think the reaction for the same way that going back, you know, to the history of television and all of the sitcoms being done and still being done in front of a live studio audience, it's theater and having those spontaneous reactions are reflected in the energy and what the actors and actresses up on stage are giving back to you. Um, and again, it's, it, if you're capturing that authentic sort of ephemeral performance, that moment in time is very much affected by, by the live audience. Uh, you are like speaking my language. It's, it's like part of the premise of my, of the film live musicals website is that the shows have to be filmed with a live audience in the room, because I really believe that the camera can capture that ephemeral energy that happens in the exchange between the audience and the actors. Very much so. Mm. Very much so. And it's, and it's specific, you know, not everything, you know, you're making a film or you're making a TV series. uh, You don't necessarily have a live audience, but you're also trying to capture something different, you know, and there's a difference between creating something for the camera that you're going to edit and, and, you know, shot by shot and something that is captured live. And sure, there might still be some editing or there might be different camera angles and all of that. But if you are embracing the liveness of the moment, I mean, the audience is just a crucial, crucial, crucial component of that. Absolutely. And so I, I want to bring that into Grease Live in 2016. And you had a really unique uh, behind the scenes portion of the event. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So uh, again, between all of our partners, Paramount Television, uh, which was the studio producing Grease Live, uh, Mark Platt um, uh, and Adam Siegel are our executive producers and Greg Sills, and then Fox, which was our network. Um, From day one, audience was a big part of the conversation. And Tommy Kale, our director, everybody knew they wanted to make the audience a crucial component. And also part of being live is how do we engage the audience at home? And, you know, there's always a period where you'd say, oh, we don't want people on their phones because they're not going to be watching the show and staring at the TV screen. But let's be real. Everybody at home, if you're watching this from your home, you're on your phone no matter what. That's just part of society today and social engagement. So how do we how do we use that to augment what they're watching and to also embrace the liveness and try and convey to the audience sitting at home the excitement and the spontaneity and the oh my god are they going to pull it off, you know, nature of those live broadcasts. And so we were one of the first to partner with Facebook and it was Facebook Live, what became Facebook Live. But at the time it wasn't accessible to, you know, you and I and and common people at home. They were just sort of rolling out the platform. And to to date they had used it for, I guess, a couple of these live sort of concert um uh, experiences and a few other things. Um, and we managed to bring them on as a partner to create a second screen sort of behind the scenes experience. And because of the na- the unique nature of Greece where we were trying something something new in that we were 
outside uh, for much of it. You know, we had the, the vast back lot at Warner Brothers to film on. Um, and, you know, between Tommy Kale's creative direction and Mark Platt's leadership and David Corrin's production design, it had a spanning three separate sound stages on the lot, plus pretty much the entire expanse of the Warner Brothers back lot. <laughs> so we're, we're talking, you know... A lot of ground. <laughs> Hence where out of necessity came the use of the the now infamous golf carts. But also then, again, the creative team being like, well, let's embrace this. And not only do we need them logistically to get cast from A to B, but let's make it part of the show and bring the audience along for the ride. So some of that was part of the live broadcast, but much of it became part of this second screen streaming experience on Facebook, where the audience at home, you know, could watch as you're going to commercial, everybody jumping in the golf carts and trying to get to their next quick change. And, you know, the pink ladies pulling off their jackets and changing while on the carts getting from A to B. And it gave you a sense of the rush, 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 and the adrenaline of trying to get from one set to another. Just as when, you know, once in a while, we all remember the famous uh, Kelly O'Hara quick change that they filmed, I think, during the Tony Awards offstage in the wing. And it makes you you know, realize what the talent is going through and also, you know, give some insight into a, the incredible design and thought that goes into the planning and also the crews. I think there was a moment on Grease Live that captured, you know, 10 dressers, costume dressers doing a quick change simultaneously in a line with this entire ensemble, like an assembly line. And it just made you appreciate it. But it also said, Oh, I'm a part of this. I'm experiencing what they're experiencing. And so again, aside from being in the live audience at the event, how do you bring that experience of liveness to, to, um, you know, the audience at home. And I think that was a different form of theater. You know, it's theater in its own sort of modern technological way, um, but exciting and engaging, you know, none, nonetheless. And that's part of what, you know, made it unique. And the logistics of that show just boggle my mind, like the number <laughs> of moving pieces and the the fact that the liveness of it, that that camera is tracking constantly yeah uh, yeah it's it, it just it blows my mind well those don't always happen you know and Greece is a testament to everybody from from the high high executives of the network on down just taking a risk and really you know no reward without risk and that was just saying I don't we don't know what we're doing this hasn't been done but we're gonna do it you know and everybody was so game to just figure it out and problem solve right down to the last minute day of the show with you know torrential rain like they had never seen and you just figure it out and you embrace what you're given yeah. um and from you know 10 months to a year in advance of that show right down to 30 seconds before it went on air uh, things were changing and decisions were being made and all the way through the broadcast. That's the other thing about those live broadcasts, you know, you're calling the shots. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so to sort of 
roll with the punches and, and, you know. Thinking about, my heart is racing just thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Oh my Lord. I want to fast forward to rent and Mm -hmm. like this idea of liveness and uh, Brennan Hunt breaking his foot at the end of the dress rehearsal oh. and the decision to have to air. I'm sorry. <laughs> Listeners can't see this, <laughs> but Kenneth has like <laughs> bowed his head in despair. <laughs> can, can you tell us more about that night and the decision to air the dress rehearsal? For poor, poor Brennan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, accidents happen. It happens in the theater. It happens in life. It's unavoidable. Um, and again, you try to make the most. And that was a case where it was, it was a, it was a tough decision what to do. Um, now, a lot of people don't realize they're like, how can't you have understudies? Why don't you have understudies? The nature of those shows, and again, those live, the difference between doing a live capture of a stage show, where it is, it's a show that's des- ultimately designed for the theater and for a proscenium. And you can capture it and you can get creative in the capture. And I think Tommy with, with the Hamilton capture did so well in terms of designing shots. And, and I thought on SpongeBob, um, uh, Glenn Weiss did a phenomenal job working with Tina Landau in, and all of the design team in figuring out how to design camera angles to capture that, but to still understand that you're watching a live show on a stage that was built for the stage. When we do the live musicals like Grease or, or Rent, um, or any of all of them, um, you are designing, even though it's live and even though you're going to have an audience component, you're ultimately designing an experience that is built for the camera. First and foremost, it's built for an audience at home. It's, it's not built for an audience in the space. So oftentimes as a live audience, at those events, you only see a little bit of each thing, but they're so huge and costly and complicated. And the nature of that is, you know, you rehearse much like you would rehearse a stage show in a studio. And then you come to the point where you move on to your sets and you start to, you know, do what we call dry block, which is where you first, which is the same as almost getting on stage in a, in a tech rehearsal uh, in the theater. And you start to take everything you rehearsed in the studio and put it onto the actual set and the lighting designer is lighting around you. Um, and you, it's sort of, you add all the sound and in the case of rent, we had a live orchestra and band that was integrated into the set who were all playing live um, as opposed to Grease live where the music was pre-recorded, not the vocals, but the, but the audio, the music was. Um, and so you're putting all those components together and, you know, the clock is ticking, you're ticking down every day. And then you add the cameras because once you get into cameras, there's so many technical elements and cabling and cameramen. And that's a whole nother level of choreography. The cameramen who do these shows are the best of the dancers to watch them. But there's a huge safety component to that. Everything is, is staged and choreographed within every inch of its life. Because if the camera isn't, you know, and that steady cam operator or the jib operator, that's the camera on a crane and the crane arm, isn't all in perfect synchronicity with the dancers and the performers and everything and the and the guys holding the booms and the microphones. If that dance, if that choreography isn't solid and everybody's operating as one team and one unit, 
you're going to have even bigger accidents in terms of people running into each other or getting hurt with very heavy, dangerous, expensive equipment. So the time um, towards the end of that is very short. And it's that, it's that um, truncated timeline that makes having an understudy or an alternate who can just jump in very difficult. People don't realize on Broadway, you know, you have your, you have standbys, you have swings. Swings are the individuals who might do a track. I mean, they're the most valuable players in a Broadway show because they keep the curtain up. They might go on one night, um, you know, say one of the ensemble members is understudying one of the leads. So if the lead actor is out, the person from the ensemble goes on and then the swing jumps into their role. And oftentimes this happens last minute or mid show, you know, and so they're always there. They're always at the ready, but they know all these multiple tracks, but that takes time. And you start to do understudy rehearsals and swing rehearsals just in a show. It's the same as these TV shows. You don't have time leading up to opening night, those rehearsals and the opportunity for them to get on stage and do a run through with the rest of the company, which is as much for performance reasons as for also safety. It's very important to step through that with everybody um, to integrate them safely into the show. That doesn't happen until after a Broadway show opens. So when you only, when your opening night is your closing night in these live musical broadcasts, there isn't time built in to do that. So logistically to just throw somebody on in that role would be a danger to not only them, but to everybody, the crew, the cameramen, the rest of the company. Um, it's a big liability. Now I do think in, I, I do think we learned from the rent experience and I do think we'll see designated understudies for roles going forward in these live productions. But Again, you're not going to get the same performance because they haven't had the time to fully do it. And often, again, that camera blocking is happening right to the final moment, you know, changes and edits. It's almost like you edit a film, but you edit it live in the moment as you go. And you say, okay, we want to change this and we want to cut to this. And you make the adjustments and then you run it again and then you get ready for the live broadcast. And so that's what happened in Red. And um, poor Brennan, you know, wanted to do as much as he could and he had been in the emergency room all night basically he 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 it was it the accident happened off stage and he injured his foot very very badly and like the heel so like you can't even you're immobile yeah halfway and so combine that and then say okay but just embrace that and do it in the wheelchair and we did. And we did do a concert version live for the audience there. And much of it you can find on YouTube. And that was its own experience. And um, had, again, had it not been all overnight with... Because this happened in the final act of the final dress rehearsal the night before. So hour, less than 24 hours before the show was going to go on to air. So we didn't have time to create a whole second you know, screen experience. And we pushed out much of that content. And what was going live, we tried to embrace it. And we told the entire audience that night, pull out your phones, film this. Nothing is, all the actors were on board. Everybody you know, embraced that. And so we were able to capture it you know, with the people we had and, and our camera director, Alex Rudzinski, our, our amazing director shot basically the live show, just like you would in a word show, calling the shots live with our entire camera crew of the concert version. Um, but Brennan couldn't take part 
in all of that. He was, he was up all night. He was on painkillers. Uh, a lot of the medicine, you know, it affects your vo- voice so you can't sing. So it wasn't just as easy as, oh, do the whole show in a wheelchair. Or they're, they're just, the logistics of that weren't able. I mean, it broke our heart. Of course we wanted to embrace that, you know, just, just do it. Just everybody rally together as did the cast. You know, it was a very, very, very emotional, emotional experience and night Mm -hmm. for everyone. And I think what they did was just so beautiful. But on the flip side of that, we had also spent months creating this show. And when you do those live shows, you film the final dress the night before with a full audience, full on, like you're doing the real show as a contingency in case something like that happens, or if the satellite goes out, or if you're suddenly having an audio. And what they do is the night of the live broadcast, you play the tape from the night before simultaneously. So God forbid something happens, boom, they can immediately cut to the tape and it's almost in the same spot until you can fix the problem and get back to the light. And so that, that is your contingency. So we had that. And so the decision was made. Everybody was pleased with the dress rehearsal that had happened the night before. And it's so easy to hear, oh, you know, it wasn't the live show. So everybody was marking or holding back or not giving it all vocally. That's not true. I, let me tell you, they were all giving you performances of their lives. They had an audience there. They were all theater actors. And that's the thing. You, you put an audience there and knowing that that audience for the final dress was a different audience than was going to be there for the live broadcast. You want to give them just as good a performance and the same experience. And that's what they were doing. And so ultimately the decision was made that that was the, that, that was the show that had been created and so that combined with the fact that Brennan couldn't, you know, just jump in and do the full thing. Yeah. We did both. We embraced both. The final dress that had been taped is what aired live. And I know, again, knowing that it's not all happening live, yeah, it's a different, it goes to what exactly what we're talking about. It's a little bit of a different feeling at home. But um, I think both are available now and you can find the concert version that they did do. And again, you say you embrace, you know, what is thrown at you. And now we have these two, two new tellings of rent of this wonderful, you know, historic story. And, um, you know, and, and, and for, for a network like Fox to, to broadcast that, um, you know, is a testament to them and the fact that they were doing the show in the first place, you know, and the ratings weren't as, as strong as some of the others, but, but, you know, you test ratings long in advance. So you have an idea of what numbers are going to be like in television. And that wasn't affected by it not being live. That was always going to be by the nature of the show. And rent has a very specific audience and it's not going to reach the giant nostalgic audience that a grease is going to wear a sound of music. So that was partly the reality of that how great that we're introducing a new generation to that story. And, you know, so I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of the team and then, and the, the, the entire company for what they, what ultimately, you know, transpired on that night. And, you know, we'll do more in the future. But again, if we're talking about theater and liveness and it's crazy, it happens, but you know, it's sure that life happens. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So much to talk about. I know, I seriously. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even started on SpongeBob yet. Um, <laughs> I I'm curious there's rumors that uh, Netflix is going to buy a Broadway theater and start streaming more shows. Would the are the networks kind of considering like you know you talked about these massive logistics and the hours and the the time to create these live television musicals. Why not just film an existing Broadway show? or off-Broadway show, or, or regional theater? Yeah, I, I don't think any of those are off the table. If I, I, Look, I, I think in this business, in the business we call show, if, it's, if people start discovering, oh, there's an audience. You know, it's like anything. It's supply and demand. If there's an audience that wants, you know, or if there are people that need, you know, this toaster oven, and a lot of people want it, they're going to start producing more toaster ovens. Same thing here, not to reduce theater to a toaster oven, and nothing <laughs> against toaster ovens. Um, but, but I think we'll see the trends continue to evolve and change, and, and depending on what there is an audience for, you know, just as in, in television, streaming services are able to now create um, and we're seeing a lot of really, really incredible storytelling and filmmaking um, because you're able to create content for a very small niche audience. And then you hope out of that things catch on and you broaden your audience and you build just as you would build any audience. Um, the broadcast networks, um, just because of their model and selling ads to advertisers and all that are all built on eyeballs on the screen. And so it's different the content they can produce as opposed to the streamers. Now there's starting to be crossover and there's always, you know, we have some incredible uh, creative executives in our industry who are willing to take chances like that. Um, Look at what, look at, think back to uh, look at NBC. And when Bob Greenblatt took over, um, NBC, and it's much because of him, a show like Smash moved from Showtime, uh, which was a smaller, you know, niche audience, to NBC. Now, was the was the script changed and storytelling to help, you know, to brought to to make it, you know, to get out some things that weren't appropriate for younger audiences? Yeah, absolutely. But the fact that it was expo- given exposure to a broad, a huge audience like that. You know, and and it grew from there. Same thing. He took the chance to do this live, you know, I think Sound of Music and uh, uh, Craig Zayden and Neil Marin, and they they pioneered it, you know, and they they took that chance and said, I know there's an audience for this. We can do this. They're huge families at home, and and now all the networks are are, are jumping on board, and we're seeing those grow, and that's a huge financial risk but so all this to say i don't think we should limit what the future holds and now that we're seeing the streamers go oh there's an audience for these filmed broadway shows that we can give access to we're going to jump on board you know streamers like broadway hd and stuff have been doing it for a while Mm -hmm. and so now they're some of these larger streaming platforms are saying oh we can get in on this game too. And ultimately, you know, we all win. We all win. More, more people understand that, that 
Broadway exists. And then the more people who suddenly go, oh, I like these musicals. Wait, what do you mean? There's a terrific regional theater or community theater in my neighborhood or my town or the next town over. They do these shows too. We should go see that. We should go check that out. And it, it all has sort of this, this, this overall effect, um, you know, that, that everybody, everybody benefits from, I think. Um, so I do hope we see more of it. And I think seeing the kind of live shows that the broadcast networks do will also evolve. You know, the one thing that broadcast can still do that the streamers can't, although they sort of can, but the idea of live broadcasting, I can still go get NBC or Fox or ABC with a wire coat hanger and a, 40-year-old television set and pick it up from wherever, you know, there's a signal. I don't need a fiber optic cable or a plug-in or a Wi-Fi connection. And broadcast networks still have that. And so I think seeing where, whereas the sort of one-night-only live specials and events for so long had been constricted to award shows and, and sporting events, now they're going, oh, there are more opportunities. We can do these live. We can do live series. We can do live. NBC did a, a live episodic series. I forget the name of it, but for a season. Um, there are so many, you know, so many new avenues and platforms to sort of explore. And just as the filming, you know, it's like three different, it's so many different things. You know, the live the lot quote unquote live musicals, whatever we want to call them, like the grease and the rent, and the, the upcoming Annie live and the, Jesus the Christ superstar, uh, Christ superstar yeah. all of those. That's one thing. And again, it's a hybrid where it's live, but it's designed for the camera, but it involves an audience. And then the capturing of like a stage show that is created for the stage. And yes, you tailor your camera work to capture that in the best way, but you don't, rip apart the show and restage the entire show for the camera. But then to add a version C to that, I know the UK, especially during the pandemic and the national uh, theater amongst others have started to explore that as well, where they take a production and a cast that might have already been produced for the stage. And they're, they're, they're not, broadcasting it live but they're taping it but they're restaging it all more like a film and a fully immersive you know world even mcc theater here off broadway was doing some of that and experimenting with that so again it's 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 the old yes and mentality that we're used to where uh, these all are different they all can coexist one doesn't negate the other and i think ultimately as creators we just have to say what is how best to tell this story because at the end of the day it's storytelling and so i think the more avenues we find for that storytelling just the more exciting it is and you know now we you can do it at home look tiktok i wouldn't call tiktok theater i would now I'm really going down a slippery slope, but, but, you know, and I also wouldn't call like a five second snippet, like, <laughs> you know, a full narrative story, but there is a narrative element to it. And what people are creating just with their own phone and pushing that content out there just sort of gives a glimpse into where things can go. Now, do I want to watch all of my, all of my, uh, you know, with all the design and, and, story and nuance that goes into a show 
I don't want to watch personally that in a vertical format on my phone where the frame is condensed and I can only <laughs> see it so much. But I enjoy what I watch on the phone, but I also enjoy the other stuff. And they, again, it can all coexist. It can all complement, much as that second screen that you referenced on Greece did. There are ways for all of this to work together and to complement each other. It's all um, part of the web, all part of the ecology yes, of, yes. of theater. Storytelling, communication. It's like the oldest form, art form, you know, it's it's the bedrock on which humanity and social interaction is based. And so we're we're evolving. And so I'm excited to see like what, you know, grows out of this. You know, you go way back to me talking about why I'm in the theater. And I think my first exposure to this thing called Broadway, even though I was always doing already doing some children's theater, was the live capture of Into the Woods. My grandfather taped Into the Woods on American Playhouse on PBS for me. And again, I was, I don't know how old I was. I was super young. But to watch that, I knew it was something different because I still had a sense that all of these actors were on a stage in a space and there was an audience watching them. And so that wasn't lost on me. And that didn't make me say, oh, I don't want to see it on stage because I just watched it on my TV set. It made me all the more fascinated on what is it like to create and to have all those people in a room and to be in that room when everybody is laughing together. You know, we say when you're in a room together, all your, you know, and you're experiencing music, your heart rate sinks up. Like it's that, what is that feeling like? And it just made me as a child curious, all the more curious and so it goes back to that and a little fun fact the producer who produced the live capture of that into the woods is a gentleman named greg sills who i've had the pleasure to work with and to learn from on grease live and he did rent we're doing an upcoming project together and you know again i had the opportunity to you know have my roots in the theater to learn about television from some of the best doing Smash and some of those other series, but then going to do these live shows, these live broadcast shows, it's a whole nother art form on top of that. And so Greg taught me a lot about that, but he started doing a lot of those live captures for, for Broadway shows in a theater and bringing in cameras and figuring that out. And so it just to bring that full circle, like I'm honored that to think that he created that and then I got to learn from him and to do you know something as exciting as Greece where we were all creating together um it was it was really exciting oh that is so beautiful and I'm I'm now picturing children around the world uh, experiencing Spongebob for the first time as their introduction uh we're, we're running very short on time but yeah, I, I yeah. really I I want to talk about Spongebob um can you tell us about the decision to film in the UK and the process of of remounting a show a year later <laughs> it it honestly came out of necessity they knew they wanted to capture it they knew they wanted to do it for that holiday. They wanted to air it around the holidays. It just felt like a good time. And it's a time when lots of families, you know, sit down and are looking for shows to watch together. Uh, so it was a very, so, and, and the decision was made, we were in the process of putting up the national tour at the time. And I think it was over the summer and all the pieces came together. And there were literally no theater spaces in the United States to go into between, you know, re- theaters that were big enough to equip this theater was, 
I mean, knock on wood, everything was doing so well. So there were so many shows. There were all these tours. Things were booked out. Sure, they could carve out dates here and there, but none of them that fit the ultimate timeline. Um, and it wasn't until a production, it was a, a pre-West End Bound musical that delayed its dates um, at the theater, uh, oh, the theater Royal um, uh Plymouth in Plymouth, England. So it wasn't, we didn't shoot it in London or anything. We shot it five hours outside of London on the English Channel in, in, in the sea going town of Plymouth. But again, beautiful state of the art theater that often hosts national tours in the UK and pre West End bound shows and all of that. They had a show drop out. They were excited about it. It made sense, the timing. And so we had producers that said, yes, this is worth it. So they literally if you can imagine it, recreated and constructed a whole new set in the UK. That entire, we had the immersive, you see it on the broadcast, it came out over the, the whole, the whole thing loaded into this, what we rehearsed in New York with the cast, did in Plymouth. Again, just the fates aligned our entire cast. Um, I think Lily Cooper was doing Tootsie at the time. Uh, so she was, she wasn't able to reprise her role as Sandy, but otherwise, um, that entire company we rehearsed and they flew the entire cast and creative team over there. And David Zinn was there loading in the set and, and, um, uh, Kevin Adams was there lighting it. And, and, and we had Tina, uh, you know, working hand in hand with Glenn Weiss to design the shots and to figure out how best to capture the moment. And then we brought in the live audience and it was the first time it got to be performed for a live audience in the UK. And of course they know SpongeBob just as much. And it was, it was really wonderful to see it. I mean, SpongeBob was great because at the palace every night, you know, and being New York, we had such international audiences coming to see it uh, from all over the globe, but to see it with a British audience was very exciting. And to, and so we, we, we did it over a period of a few days, you know, we teched the whole show and then we did that in a, in, in a very different way in that we broke it up into acts because it was designed for Nickelodeon, which is a broadcast cable network. So you had to structure the story and build in commercial breaks. You know, we had to think about where do the commercials go? So I believe it, we did 10 acts. We broke the show up into 10 acts. And what we would do is we would film it and act at a time. So it gave us the opportunity to, you know, so act one was from the prologue with Patchy all the way up through the opening number, I think, and into the, the mayor's speech and, and the alert. And then that was the great out into the commercial. So what we would do is we would run that. We would sort of do a dry run with all the cameramen to get the camera angles, make sure everything looked good. And we would film the whole thing, you know, roll, roll the camera, do it all for the live audience, and then reset all of it rather than move on to the next and just do that act. And it gave us a quick chance to like Tina and I to run backstage and be like, Ethan, that was great. But this next time do this. So we get something different, you know, so we can ultimately put together what's best for that creatively. And also like if there was an issue or if the camera angle was off, we could correct it, give some notes. And then while it was fresh in both the cast and the cameramen's minds, because again, their choreography is just as complicated. Great. That was a great take. Now we're going to switch this, this, and this. So when you're only filming it in, say, six-minute chunks, mm -hmm. you know, it gave us a chance to, like, just like you would do in a rehearsal, you know, change it and then run that scene again while it was fresh. And wow. so we would do that piece by piece, and we shot the entire thing in span of two days. 
maybe one day, I don't remember, but like, and it was the same audience and uh, Ben Cameron from Ben does Broadway and everything came out. We flew him out with us and he would do like, he was like the warm up guy. So he'd keep the audience going and he would interview <laughs> cast members and bring audience, bring kids up on stage to sing with the cast members and to ask questions and to play games and trivia. And it was great. So it was, it was an event unto itself and it mm. kept the energy. So that's, that's how that all transpired. And, you know, I'm so thankful that, we had that then when the pandemic was only months away, which we didn't realize. Really, at the literally. Time. <laughs> and so to have, you know, some new theater there captured that people could experience. And I know a lot of people and just personally a lot of friends who have young children now who were even too young three years ago to come see it on Broadway mm-hmm. were now able to experience it and appreciate it. And they would send me pictures at home watching it and, and I'd forward them on to Tina or to like some of the cast and stuff. And it's, you know, it's really, it's, that's, that's why, that's ultimately why we do it, you know? Yeah. And again, did it detract from the show? No. Now, if anything, those people are just saying, Oh, I wish, I wish, you know, my daughter had been old enough at the time to go see it live on Broadway. Is the tour going to come back out? You know, we'll definitely bring her. So again, the show, the actual theater show, benefits from it. And now you've now it's available for licensing and we're starting to see high schools. And many of those high schools, because it was the pandemic, had to stream yes. the high school production. <laughs> so it all comes it all comes full circle, but it yeah. still gave them an opportunity to perform and it gave their family an opportunity to watch it. And so mm-hmm. it all comes back to accessibility. Absolutely. Who were the audience in Plymouth? Who who made up the audience? Um, school children. So I mean, it was it was a lot of school groups. It was a lot of um, families, but it was a lot of you know we wanted to make sure there were kids. We and and they were brought in from not just Plymouth but communities around there because we also uh, you know where accessibility matters wanted to bring in you know as many you know and uh, diverse and from all different school districts. So it was, it was a lot of, a lot of kids of, of all ages, of all ages, you know, and again, to sit in a theater, maybe for some of them, it was their first time being in a live theater. So, um, you know, that was excited, exciting unto its, unto itself, but it was, it was like nothing I've ever with all the, all the different shows and live shows and stuff that was its own, it, its own, you know, really special experience i loved it it was really great it's and the joy comes through in the capture too it's it's just glorious one last question on spongebob Uh, i'm curious about the equity agreements because in the uk the agreements are much kind of easier to negotiate than in the us was that like i you talked about the theater availability but was that factored into it as well well because spongebob was not it, it was SAG. It was not equity is what happened. It fell. All of the actors and the cast were put on SAG agreements. So they were on, on screen actors guild rates for that broadcast um, or the equivalent of it overseas. Um, and that's because, you know, it's the difference of equity is involved now. If it's a show that's say in a theater or a regional theater right now where they can't sell their entire subscriber base. They can't fill the theater to maximum capacity. So you can buy a ticket and stream it, but the audience, the viewership of that stream is still capped. 
right? It's capped like your ticket sales would be. That's where it falls under equity. But because SpongeBob was filmed for a television broadcast on a cable network where they're selling commercial airtime, you know, we're selling, we're selling Tootsie Roll Pops while you watch SpongeBob or we're selling, you know, Coca-Cola. So, so the cast, it was, it was Screen Actors Guild because they're doing a show and they deserve to be compensated, you know, for that form of, of, distribution now within that and i won't get into the business of it because i'm not a producer on spongebob i was just the associate director so i don't know all of the deals but i know there were caps in terms of just as there are with all the tv shows like a certain number of air dates and times you can air it and then when it now it's on paramount plus so you know the cast does i think I, you know, there's, there's, they participate and yeah, it's just cause they're on SAG agreements with it. Yeah. So, and again, great. The more we can open up those opportunities and, you know, have, have the Broadway cast as opposed to when you make a feature. And I know everybody would love to always see the Broadway cast in it, but the reality of it is again, financially in business, like there's a reason stars are stars. There is much about marketing. And so, you know, that's a whole nother hot, debate but at least for the moment we're able to capture the original broadway stars in these shows put them on a giant broadcast network that people around the world can access and hopefully it just raises their availability and shows people their amazing talents and more catch on and then you are going to see them as your next big movie star as a result of that um and so Again, I think it's beneficial for for everyone with something like that. But I'm so glad Nickelodeon, you know, just just captured that and with that with that extraordinary cast and, and Tina's vision. You know, well, it was, you know, it's just it's just it's indescribable. Oh, I I wish I wanted to. I could. I would keep talking about this for hours. I, just... <laughs> I know you could. You could do an episode on each one of those shows because they're each their own crazy. You know, absolutely. Experiences. So, to wrap us up, I have a series of questions that I ask all my guests. Okay. Uh, first up, what is your favorite musical? Oh my gosh! Oh, it's these kind of questions. What's my favorite musical? That's so hard. I know. Ah. Oh, I can't pick just one. That's so hard. Mine changes depending on my mood, the day, the time of year. <laughs> it, re- it really has. I mean, I'll go back to Into the Woods just because I have such a soft spot because it was truly the first sort of big Broadway type show I experienced as a kid watching it from home on 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 that on that TV. So I'll, I'll go with that one for now. At that that was my first filmed live musical that I ever saw. So that yeah. special place in my heart too. Uh, do you have it a favorite? It sticks with you. It leaves a memory, right? It's like ingrained. Really yeah. Yeah. It's, it, and that particular capture also is so brilliant. It is. It is. Uh, do you have a favorite filmed live musical? A favorite filmed live musical. Now, a, like a filmed on stage musical or mm-hmm. like a, bro- okay. Filmed on stage. Um, oh boy. These are, these are <laughs> good favorites. Oh my gosh. You know, I have to say, it's not, this is sort of cheating. It's not really a, I really enjoy, oh, no, you know, you know what I enjoy just because it was a performance I wish I had seen was the Kiss Me Kate Mm. that was captured. The Broadway, 
the the I I they didn't shoot. I don't believe they shot it on Broadway because the original company was Marin Maisie and Brent Stokes Mitchell. But um, that it was captured. It was the Broadway production. I forget mm. who's even in it now. But I really enjoyed that because it was a musical I didn't know. It was I hadn't seen the film, and so that was my first sort of experience of that oh i don't know that one i need to i mean i know kiss me kate and there are yeah. london productions but i i don't think i know of a, of the broadway one so i need to look that up yeah and this might have been it was the it was the the revival in the early 2000s um hmm. that they captured but i think they might have captured captured like the national tour cast or or several Got i'm it. sure some of your listeners will 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 know exactly <laughs> oh it was this company and it was shot in this theater on the yeah. tour or something but maybe it was in the uk too i'm not sure uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm intrigued. I want to look that up. Yeah. Uh, a filmed theater is not exactly film, and it's not exactly theater. So, what should we call it? Oh, I think it's important to get on stage. I think it's important to delineate because just as I was talking, some are designed for the camera; these are designed for the stage. So, such and such live on stage. Maybe you could call it a, a live stagical. No, that would just be a. <laughs> That would just be a live musical. Same thing. What I'm saying is a terrible idea. Um, but I think I think having that delineation and making it clear, because you want the people who enjoy it to realize, oh, this was done on a stage in this magical place called a theater, you know, where people are there and, and experiencing it simultaneously. So I think that's the delineation. Whereas you have like Jesus Christ Superstar live. If it were actually the production on stage in the theater, I want to know that it's like live on stage or live mm. in the theater or from such and such theater. I think it's great. We have so many playhouses across the world. You know, I think it's we should include those in the title. Why don't we say live on stage? You know, just like you would say live the Super Bowl halftime show live from such and such stadium. Say live from the you know Pantages Theater or live from. Uh, you know, Riverside Theater in Vero Beach, Florida, to shout out to my hometown, or live on stage from, you know, the Marriott Marquis. Whatever it is, I think, give the theater a shout out. I think that would be really great. Mm. And especially if we start seeing some of these, uh, some more like regionals and stuff, because they're doing incredible art also. And there have been some live, you know, captures of plays and stuff there as well. And so give them visibility and let people know that these exist in their hometowns and their communities oh yes get like wherever we can boost theater let's yeah. let's boost it yeah uh where do you stand on bootlegs um i don't i can't stand up for bootlegs like you no one should be pulling out their camera and filming a performance um uh both <laughs> Both you shouldn't be annoying the poor person sitting next to you, but also it's a performance that's not designed to be on camera and it's different every night. And, um, you know, I think we can go down this toxic slope of people comparing performances and no night is the same or, or different people. And I think it just, there's, there's so many reasons, not to mention it's the person's livelihood and their art and it shouldn't be put out there if it's being broadcast and it's being streamed and it's being done well and there's quality control that's one thing but to bootleg it you shouldn't now now that said if i also 
you know, just like everyone, there'll be a show in time that you missed. And I'm as guilty as anyone. We go on YouTube and we find it. And I'm glad it's there. Yeah, maybe. But, but, but we shouldn't be actively filming and posting shows while shows are running. It's, it's, it's not right to the artists involved and to the creators and to the audience past, present and future who might want to see it. It's, it's Mm -hmm. not fair. Yeah. You want to be able to control what you're putting out, you know, into the world. What theater do you wish had been filmed? Well, one of the early shows I, one of the memories I have seen of shows I went to on Broadway as a student and as a theater student in training was Ragtime, the original Broadway production of Ragtime from what was then the Ford Center. You know, it's gone through many names and Harry Potter's there now, but the original Ragtime, it was this insanely lavish production of which the scale matched the story because the story already is sort of anthemic in in both sound and the nature of the story exactly um and and there was an element of pageantry to that original production and it's a story that's that's resonant and special and can work in a black box with no theaters and no sets and i mean no 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 production you know design at all uh and it would still work with that gorgeous score and story but something about that original production was so huge and i and i would have loved to have seen that captured for future generations i just it was just really really special uh both the production and like those performances dear Marin Maisie's mother and brian Sox mitchell and and Audrey mcdonald and just just top top to bottom in a, a stellar production under frank galati's direction once in a lifetime production. yeah 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 i wish that had been captured and i think it would have translated really well yeah oh yeah for sure uh, what would you like, finally, what would you like to see filmed in the future? Ooh. I mean, anything, anything that feels like the opportunity is right. Again, not all, not all shows, not all stories, uh, not all productions need to be or feel like they want to be. But if there's a reason for it and you feel like there's an audience there and you feel like the timing of putting this out into the world is right, um, I don't think we should limit ourselves. I mean, you know, and also some of the consideration is stories evolve and stories evolve to the medium in which they're being told. And so I also have the utmost respect if we say this just wants to live in the theater in this time and place, or you might say, we don't want to stream the stage show because we think the next iteration, we want to do a feature film. And so let's just do the, let's focus on that. Um, And again, one doesn't negate the other. It's just a matter of the creators and their original intention and how best they think the story can be told and, and how to build upon that. So, so that said, what I'd like to see streamed, um, I don't know. Again, as the Broadway shows wrap up their run, if they're ones that you don't think where you might think, you know, to negate what I said earlier about, uh, you know, you 
detracting from an audience. Some of them already are, are have a limited audience in terms of their base, and you might not be able to grow them by the streaming. So I understand and respect the decision not to stream a show while it's still you know in the infancy of its run or the early stages. But then you have ones that have run a good life, you know, like cats. Okay. Full disclaimer, and to all the Cats fans, no, nothing against you. Um, it was never the highest show on my list, personally, as a kid growing up, to go see live. When I came to New York, there were always, you know, you can't see everything, and there were always those four or five, and that's tense the competitive nature. And so that wasn't one of mine. But I had always wished, like, it's so legendary, and you hear from people that loved it, and the quality of dance and the design and all of that and it was like god i wish i could see it and they did you know they filmed they captured it live on stage and i got to see it and so so i i say all that where shows that are at the end of their run if you're able to do that so then those who weren't able to catch it in that moment in time can Mm -hmm. i think you know would be really great like for example here's here's a good example this isn't answering your question at all but the producers (laughs) The producers, (laughs) I had the luxury, I was in college, I was going to college in Chicago when the producers did its pre-Broadway out-of-town trial. And I was there at the first invited audience to the out-of-town, so literally the first time Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick and that production of the producers was ever put in front of a live audience. I was in that audience at the Palace Theater in Chicago. It was amazing. And then saw it on Broadway, et cetera, et cetera. But the film didn't capture the comedy, just like a sitcom, like there's there's something with comedy being in a room full of people and hearing others laugh and it adds to it. And I think that's a show where those performances in that specific moment in time, when you knew we were moving on to the next cast, and it doesn't mean you have to release it right away, but I wish that had been captured. And I'm sure it is, again, I bet it's in the yeah, New York the Public Library. library. Yeah. But I wish that had been captured for people to understand like, the brilliance of those performances. And also, you know, it was right after nine 11 too. And as a bomb and what there's a reason, like the timing was so fortuitous of a show like that, that was fun and such joy and just laughter mm-hmm. uh, that was necessary. And so that seeped into the audience's collective engagement and response to the piece itself. And I wish that had been captured that moment in time, mm-hmm. whereas the film lost that because you don't have audiences and you're editing it. And like, it's just different. It's just different. And so again, that's a perfect example of why some things work in one forum or one platform or one medium of storytelling and don't work as well in the other. And the consideration about like the strategy behind when you release it, when you film it, who who is who is releasing it, how it's being released. There's a there's a, that's a whole other you know there's a whole podcast in that too. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. we don't always know the right answers, you know. No, just as with predict. anything, yeah, exactly. Like you know, I we never imagined that Hamilton would be released while it was still on Broadway, but the pandemic changed everything. Yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah, very, it's a fascinating conversation. Oh and my boy, goodness. did we need that, you know, yes. so I'm thankful oh. it existed and they had it. And for Tommy and the entire team and, and, and Lynn deciding to, to, to put that out and having a partner in Disney. And again, it, you, you that's why you don't know, you know, you just don't know. Exactly. But capture it in the first place. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Kenneth, this has been just so much fun. I truly, I, we could keep going for another hour. <laughs> Thank you. And I love that this exists, that your database, that, oh, you know, the you. exposure, I think it's, I think it's really great. And, and 
there's so much of it out there to to sort of have it as a reference is Thank invaluable. You so much. I, w- I will have links to all your social media and your website uh, in the show notes, and make sure to keep an eye out for The Wanderer at Paper Mill Playhouse, uh, which is premiering, uh, receiving its world premiere in March 2022. Another pandemic delay, but we're so excited to get back to it. And it's it's Christy Altamar and Joey McIntyre from New Kids on the Block and Mike Wartella. Um, yeah, telling the story of a rock and roll icon, Dion DiMucci, who wrote like Runaround Sue and The Wanderer and, and his sort of growing up as a street kid in the Bronx in the 50s. It's a really great musical that we're, we're excited about. I'm very excited to see it. And uh, the film productions of SpongeBob, Rent, and and Rent on Fox are available to stream online. And Sisters the Musical is also available on DVD. Yes. Kenneth, thank you again. Filmed Live Musicals makes musical theater more accessible, brings joy, and creates a sense of connection for audiences around the world. With thanks to patrons Josh Brandon, Elliot Charles, Rachel Esteban, Mercedes Esteban Lyons, James T. Lane, Al Monaco, David Negrin, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, and Beck Twist for being a part of spreading the love of musical theatre. If you would like to join, you can do so by becoming a Filmed Live Musicals patron. For as little as $3 a month, you'll receive early access to the Filmed Live Musicals podcast, early access to site content, and a weekly newsletter with info on upcoming streams. Visit patreon.com forward slash musicals on screen to learn more. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.